We have Dr. Nicole Avina. Um, if you guys Google her, she's quite popular. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Nicole, Dr. Nicole, and um, you know what made you come on our podcast? Well, well, thanks so much for, first of all, for inviting me to come on. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm a, a research neuroscientist. My, uh, I have a PhD in neuroscience and psychology. And and for many years, I've been studying the role of appetite and how foods we eat affect our brain and how our brain plays a role in our decision-making about what types of foods we choose to eat. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing has kind of focused on sugars and carbohydrates and you know, trying to understand why people crave carbs all the time, why it's so hard to cut back on sweets. And what we've kind of gotten well known for in my lab is the fact that we've discovered that indeed sugars can be addictive. They can activate areas of the brain that are associated with reward and addiction that's very similar to what you would see with a drug of abuse. And so this whole idea that, you know, yeah, I'm addicted to carbs or I'm addicted to sugar, there's some scientific validity to that. And we show that in our lab and others have replicated those findings as well. Dr. Nicole, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. This is a health and fitness podcast, so the vast majority of our listeners are actively lifting weights. They're following some sort of dietary restrictions to meet their physique goals. And with that often comes an unhealthy relationship with food. Mm -hmm. um, I don't compete in bodybuilding anymore, but I remember when I was competing, I would view foods as bad or good, and it would totally bastardize my relationship with food. Um, so this, this is a really good episode. The first question I, I have for you, Dr. Nicole, is based on your research with carbohydrates, have you found that artificial sweeteners are addictive because they cause the same sugar response in the brain? Yeah, that's a great question. And what the research suggests is that artificial sweeteners or even some of the more popular sugar alcohols that we see now, like erythritol, they also activate the brain in the same way that real sugar does. And so, although you might save on some calories by you know, consuming something that has an artificial sweetener in it or a very low calorie sweetener in it, what we find is that people end up eating more calories later on than they would have if they just had something sweetened with real sugar. So in the long run, I don't really see them as a benefit. Also, if someone, identifies that they have a hard time controlling their intake of sweets. A lot of times they think, oh, I'll just eat, you know, foods that are sweetened with all these low calorie sweeteners or, you know, non-nutritive sweeteners and that'll be okay. But the problem is you're not addressing the addiction. You're still activating those areas of the brain that want the sugar and that crave the sugar. So it's going to make it even more difficult for you to resist overeating sugar later on. So I suggest that people try to limit their use of those artificial sweeteners because like I said, it's really not having a net effect that's really any better in the long term than having actual sugars. In your research, did you look at natural artificial sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit? We, we haven't looked at those in our actual research studies in part because a lot of the research studies that we do because I'm a neuroscientist, we study brain neurotransmitters. And so a lot of times to do those studies, we have to use animal models. And interestingly, a lot of those more natural sweeteners or ones that are marketed as more natural, at least, are so distinct and different that animals other than humans don't even taste them. And so we can't actually do studies with a lot of these artificial sweeteners in the lab because the rats that we're using in our studies don't even detect them as tastes. They're just something that is so, um, I guess, different and I want to say highly processed that it's something that the rats don't even detect. So to answer your question directly, we haven't looked at those particular sweeteners, but there have been other studies that have looked at those types of sweeteners and how they influence glucose levels and taste preference and so on and so forth in humans. 
And I think the bottom line is we have to remember that even though Stevia especially is marketed heavily as being a natural product and from nature, I think it's very much a marketing scam because it's a highly processed product. I grew a stevia plant in my garden a few years ago because I was interested in, you know, what it was all about. And when you took the leaf from the stevia plant and you chewed on it, it really did not taste very sweet. It almost tasted quite bitter. And so to go from the stevia leaf to the bag of stevia that you buy in the grocery store that looks like granulated sugar, a lot of processing has to occur. And there's a lot of steps involved. It's not all that natural in my opinion. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. I also often give the example of, you know, just because something's natural doesn't mean it's necessarily good for us or better. So and when I give this, my presentations um, to my students and also when I talk at different conferences and so on, I'll show a slide where I show, you know, coca leaves and how, you know, cocaine is derived from a coca leaf, which is a natural product. Same with, you know, alcohol. Grapes are a natural product, but that's what we use to derive, you know, wine and beverages that have alcohol in them. So I think overall, the artificial sweeteners, you know, sort of collectively are, are beneficial to some extent, but I don't necessarily think that they're the cure-all for our sweet tooth. And it's not something I think we should use to 100% re replace actual sugar. Very interesting, Dr. Nicole. What would you use then? What would, this is, again, this is just your personal opinion, but if I were to ask you, hey, Dr. Nicole, um, I'm gonna have you over for a cup of coffee. What would you like to sweeten your coffee with? What would you choose? Well, great question. I actually don't put any sugar or sweetener in my coffee. I just use a little bit of almond milk, like a drop of it, just to lighten it up. But in terms of what I would use to sweeten things, like sometimes for breakfast, I'll have a little bit of oatmeal with some almonds in it. And I'll put like a tiny squirt of honey in it or maple syrup. I guess my sort of philosophy with sugars, just based off of the years of doing this research, is that it's not about which sugar you're using. I think it's more about how much of it you're using. And I think the problem that most people face, especially in our you know modern food environment where we're so reliant on processed foods, is that so much of our food has a lot of sugar added to it already. So we're consuming so much more sugar than we need to. There are new U.S. guidelines now that tell us we should have about eight to 10 teaspoons of added sugar each day. That's sort of the recommended high point. And the average American has 22 teaspoons of added sugar each day. And so overall, Americans are consuming way much more sugar than we should be. And it's easy to do that because it's added to so many of the food products that we consume. And so I often just suggest to people, you know, don't worry about where the source of the sugar is coming from. It's more about how much of it you're using and just try to use as little as possible because it's going to sneak its way into your diet no matter what you do. Dr. Nicole, so, so in other words, though, um, you know, a lot of people make the argument like with weight training and stuff, a lot of us are in fitness. Have you studied a lot of um, the way that the sugars change in our body when we're working out. Like I'll give you an example. A lot of weightlifters insist, hey, I can't, I can't lift weights unless I have some type of car before my workout. You know, and, I, and I've always wondered, is it because they're just insulin resistant or insulin sensitive? Like, do they have some sort of, um, are they basically the brains have been trained, addicted to run on glycogen where they think they can't work out, but they actually can't. Have you studied anything like that? Yeah, great question. I, I haven't really delved into the whole exercise physiology component of diet, but I think it's a really interesting area. Um, and I think that, you know, there is this sort of idea that, and I, it's not just for people who are lifting weights. I think it's just for athletes in general that you need to have carbohydrates on board before you can do any sort of, you know, physical exertion. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, but I think it's it's also more about what types of carbohydrates you have. And so I think that, you know, if you're talking about eating, you know, a, a complex carbohydrate that's going to allow you to have a sustained release of glucose in the blood that's going to last for a while to take you through your workout so you can have that energy, use the glucose as energy, then I think that can be a good thing. But I also worry that, you know, people hear carbohydrates and they forget that there's a couple different kinds of carbohydrates, right? We have the complex carbohydrates like, you know, sweet potatoes or, you know, things that are going to have that sustained release of sugar. But then there's also the simple carbohydrates. And a lot of times, you know, if people are 
using like, you know, these um, bars or like these, you know, sort of like processed uh, drinks and things like that right before they work out, those are simple carbohydrates. They just have straight up sugar in them. And so you're going to get this rush of energy from the sugar, but it's not going to last you through a 45 or, you know, hour long workout even. Um, and so I think that that's where it's great that you guys are doing, you know, these types of segments and trying to educate people about this, because I think that people respond differently to different types of sugars, depending on the workout and, you know, what your body is accustomed to, you know, it might be that you need to have more of a complex carbohydrate right before you work out as opposed to something that's just, you know, got like this bolus of sugar that's not really going to help you sustain your energy. Um, and, you know, there's this whole, like, I guess, popular movement of people talking about using like, a ketogenic diet and really just cutting out carbohydrates. Um, I personally don't see that as something that's very sustainable. And I, I think that people who try to do that find that they don't have the energy to do things like you guys do, like lifting weights and things like that. Um, there, I have met a few people who claim that if they do it for long enough and eat that way long enough, that they are able to adapt and, and get their strength back. But just overall, in terms of, you know, thinking about lifelong dietary changes, um, I don't necessarily think that that's the way to go. I think it's really hard to sustain. Well, I mean, it, it, it's a kind of a complicated subject because when you say keto diet, like there's different variations of keto diet. Like some people think just eating meat all day is keto. Some people think just avoiding um, potatoes and, and rice is keto. I mean, it just depends on, on what. But like, are you, um, what's your take on if I already eat a bunch of meat, wouldn't that convert into sugar in the body anyway? So if someone's on keto, aren't they still getting sugar through the, through the glucogenesis? Yeah. So the idea, I mean, when I talk about the ketogenic diet, I'm talking about this sort of the medical version of it, if you will, which is, you know, the ketogenic diet has been around for many years. It was initially um, developed. Oh gosh. It's been quite a while. One of the popular uses for it was to help people who have intractable epilepsy. Um, it was found that people who have a severe form of epilepsy that don't seem to respond to medication, if they um, train their body essentially to burn fat as a fuel, that it helps reduce the uh, occurrence of seizures. And so that's kind of how it became popular in the medical field years ago. And now it's kind of found its way into the, the health and fitness field as well, too, as a way to lose weight. Um, I think that when you talk about just sort of eating a lot of meat, is that going to get converted into glucose? It certainly will. And what happens, though, is that if you're on a strict ketogenic diet and you're not consuming any carbohydrates, basically your body starts to produce ketones. And so you're no longer burning glucose as your fuel. You're producing ketones, and that's allowing you to essentially burn fat as your fuel. And so for many people, what happens is, you know, that's great because they can lose a whole bunch of weight really quick because their body burns up the fat that they're eating and also and uses that as energy and they also burn the fat that's on their body so if you have a lot of extra body fat that's going to help you lose some body fat um but in terms of the efficiency of you know fuel use i think our bodies are really just better burners of glucose than they are of fat and so to turn it into usable energy it seems that you know our bodies are really designed to burn glucose as the fuel not fat as the fuel Interesting. What about like intermittent fasting, fasting, all that stuff? My, and again, yeah. yeah, these are, you know, my opinion on it again. And I, I come to this, it's interesting because I, I study obesity, but our lab also does research on eating disorders. And so for many years, we've been studying binge eating disorder and um, restriction and the, as it relates to the classic eating disorders. And the intermittent fasting I find fascinating because it very much resembles an eating disorder. It's the type of behaviors that, you know, we would not want to suggest that someone engage in. Um, and I think that, you know, it's fine to, and again, it all it boils down to what you said before, right? I mean, how do you define it? How do you define intermittent fasting? If you tell me that an intermittent fast means you don't eat anything past, you know, eight o'clock at night until you're, you have breakfast in the morning, maybe you go 12 hours without eating, 
then that's fine. That's not an intermittent fast. To me, that's just, you know, going to bed and, and getting up in the morning and having breakfast. Um, so it really depends on how you define it. I think people take it differently. I've heard people talk about like, you know, not having anything for 24 hours or just having water or broth or things like that. And again, I don't necessarily think that that's an efficient way to train our brains or our bodies about food, because if you deprive your body and your brain of food, even for that period of time, you know, you have this whole cascade of neurotransmitters and brain systems that are going to be activated and they're going to go into survival mode and they're going to say, wow, we're starving. So we better make sure the next time we see food, we eat a whole bunch of it. We have this sort of primitive brain when it comes to appetite and food intake. And those primitive behaviors kick in, um, especially if we have a period of deprivation. And so um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of my take on it is it, it coming from the eating disorders field. It's something that you know, I've, I've seen many people, you know, struggle over the years with versions of intermittent fasting and then overeating or refeeding, and it can lead to a difficult, vicious cycle of behavior that, you know, can be difficult to get out of. So I don't necessarily think it's a good idea for people. So, so if you wake up in the morning and you're not hungry, you're telling me you should eat anyway? Because no, I, not, I don't eat them. I have a disorder. <laughs> right. No, no, not at all. Not at all. No, I don't. I, hey, I don't eat until 10 o'clock in the morning because I'm just not hungry when I wake up. Same with my, you know, 10 year old kids. Some people just wake up and they're not hungry when they wake up. Um, no, I, I think it's totally fine to, you know, wait until you're hungry to eat breakfast or wait until you're hungry to eat. But I also think that, you know, these types of plans where you're purposely, you know, not eating for a whole day or something like that where you're you know, depriving yourself when you are in fact hungry, I don't think that's a good idea. Because again, that's where I'm saying we're gonna set this cascade of neurotransmitters into play that's going to put us in this survival mode that might you know, make us wanna overeat or make us eat things later on that we wouldn't have wanted to eat had we you know, been feeding ourselves when we were hungry. All right, and then one more question on that. Isn't the way humans evolved survival flight or fight like because like we didn't have refrigerators and pantries and processed foods for millions of years if we wanted food we had to hunt for it and it wasn't right. that easy so it's like isn't that normal for us to go a period without food like what about autography what about uh, digestion all that stuff the benefits like i'm kind of like um like so you're basically saying we shouldn't eat the way we're naturally supposed to eat. Like if you give a cat food eight times a day, they'll come arrest you for abuse because you're overfeeding your animal. But we're supposed to eat eight times a day according to, you know, what the diet gurus tell us instead of eating twice a day or three times a day. Well, so, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, everybody's got their own opinion on how often we're supposed to eat, right? I mean, I think that's part of the problem is that there's just so much information out there and so much of it is conflicting. You know, my take on things is all evidence-based on what the research studies tell us. And in terms of the guidelines, we don't really have guidelines in terms of, you know, how many meals we're supposed to have each day. The USDA gives us guidelines on how much calories the average American should eat. And, and again, those are even difficult because it doesn't take into account, you know, activity levels or even, you know, age. It's just really, you know, the standard, you know, 2000 calorie a day diet. So what if I told you though, that we're not rats? What if I told you that we're humans? You're going off rat studies. You're not going off human studies. No, I'm actually talking about, I'm talking about human studies. I'm talking about the That's government. Not, I, I haven't seen that. I've seen human studies showing the opposite. Like where, where, where are you getting your human studies from? Because I've read, I read, like I've read Jason Fung's books. He cites human studies. I don't know if you follow him. He cites human studies showing the benefits of intermittent fasting and fasting for 24 hours and fasting for two days, three days. So, like, where are you conflicting with that? What studies are you citing exactly? I'm trying to figure I'm, that out. I, well, like I just said, I'm coming at this from the neuroscience background and from, you know, the over 90 papers that I've published in peer-reviewed journals that have looked at the effect of binging and food intake on the brain. And so I'm coming at it from that background. And if you think that there are benefits to intermittent fasting and you're convinced by the studies that the people that you're following are citing, then 
hey, that's great. But my opinion, which you asked for, is that I don't find it to be something that is a sustainable, healthy behavior. Um, and going back to your question earlier about how we evolved, yes, we, as I mentioned, we have this sort of primitive drive to overeat when food becomes available. And, you know, I think that part of the issue is now we have access to food so often, right? And so when people food deprive themselves or deprive themselves, the foods that we end up binging on are not like the foods that we would have been able to find in nature, right? If you binge deprived yourself back, you know, during the hunter and gatherer phase, and then you were to, you know, find food finally, you're not going to find a refrigerator full of hamburgers or, you know, all this food and all these processed foods that we have access to now. So I think that's one of the things to, to keep in mind about, you know, a big difference between back then and now is that, you know, the food sources that we have are very different and the amount of food that we would have access to when we were to refeed would be very different than it is now. Steve, if you went on PubMed and searched, you know, just like human dietary patterns, you'd have almost a million studies. So you can cherry pick a couple of studies if you want to support whatever, whatever idea you have. It, it, I know that, Trevor. I know. I actually, I actually, the stuff that I put out is actually cited by people. But let's go back a little bit. I want to hear more about the workout thing. Like, what is the most um, best strategy? Let's say you want to wake, wake up in the morning and work out. Okay, so what is the best strategy ahead of your workout to really get the best energy during your workout, to get the best results during your workout? What should, what should our guys listening to this doing? Because we all work out. 99% of the people listening to this podcast are workout fanatics. So give us your, your opinion on what's, what's the best strategy. Well, I'm probably not the best person to interview about that because like I said, I don't, I'm not an exercise physiologist. I'm not studying, you know, what foods people should eat to make them have a better workout or to make them have a, a more productive workout. Uh, my contribution to this really focuses on, you know, helping people to try to understand why we want to eat certain types of foods and what food choices we make that, you know, might not always be so healthy. And so, um, I don't know if I can really give you guys a good answer to that that could speak to, you know, people who are weightlifting or working out a lot. I can say that one of the things that we have found in our research is that that people find that, you know, using highly processed foods or eating a lot of foods that have added sugars in them, that that seems to be detrimental to health. And that seems to produce changes in the brain and changes in behavior that can lead to overeating and more eating and more eating. And, you know, when you're not working out, that can certainly lead to obesity and, you know, increased body weight and other metabolic issues that are, you know, not so good. And so um, in terms of the workout side of it, I really, you know, can't comment that much on it other than my advice would be to try not to eat too much highly processed food because, you know, again, if you're working out a lot, that's great because you're going to be burning off the calories. But if you're eating a lot of highly processed food with lots of sugars added, it's going to, you know, lead to the cycle where you're going to be craving those processed foods, craving the sugars, and it might make it more difficult down the road when maybe you're not working out as so heavily, um, especially when you get a little bit older, um, to kind of cut out those bad behaviors. And I know I've, I've talked to many people over the years who worked out a lot and did a lot of weightlifting when they were younger. And then, you know, as they got older and changed the way that they worked out, they found that they still had these same eating habits and these same sort of um, cravings and, you know, types of foods that they wanted to eat. And so that can be a difficult habit to break later on in life. And so that's why I think it's important to be mindful about what you're eating now um, because it could be difficult to change that later on. So let me rephrase that. I know Trevor wants to jump in. He's been quiet so far. Let me rephrase that a little bit because um, maybe this would make more sense. Like, okay, let's say forget working out, just like in general. You wake up in the morning, you have a big bowl of um, cereal, you know, sugary cereal. Because when we were growing up, kids, that's what we, you know, a lot of us ate you know, that $2 box of cereal. And a lot of kids do that now. You did that with a bunch of milk, whatever, lots of sugar. And even with the like cornflakes, people drip, you know, sugar on top of it. We see it all the time. Or people have coffee with like three things of cream and three things of sugar. So they're getting a ton of sugar in the morning. What happens in plain English, what happens in our body when you're throwing that much sugar at it? What's the, what's the process that the body has to go through to kind of move that sugar through? 
Where, yeah. where, and then, and then tie that into what you were saying about the crashing during our, during our workouts or whatever. It could be you going to a meeting at work and then during the meeting you're, you fall asleep because you crash. Yeah, it, exactly. So I think that this is, you know, again, uh, it's unfortunate that many people do eat that way, right? Because in even little kids who, you know, get up and get ready to go to school, a lot of times it's like a rush, rush, rush to get out of the house. So they have, you know, a bowl of cereal, some milk, a little bit of sugar added to it, or, you know, this basically a whole bunch of simple sugars that are, you know, going to give them the energy to get out the door. But maybe like an hour or two later, you're going to have this crash. And it's because, the blood, the glucose that's in our blood is going to be released much more quickly in response to eating all those simple sugars than it would be, you know, had we had something that had a slower release of more complex carbohydrates. So for instance, if we had, you know, plain oatmeal with a little bit of fruit on top, that would have a very, you know, much more sustained release of the glucose. So you wouldn't feel that immediate crash. Um, or feel start to feel like jittery or lethargic or tired a little bit after eating it. And so how we eat our foods and the types of foods we eat and when we eat them has a, a big impact on not only our blood glucose levels, which can impact you know how we feel and our mood, but also our brain because all these things are connected. And so when you have a you know a sugary food for breakfast, and then it's going to, you know, affect your brain and say, you know, hey, it's going to release dopamine, it's going to re release opioids, it's going to release all these chemicals that make you feel good. That's why if somebody has like a, a muffin or a donut for breakfast, yeah, it feels good. But the problem is that you're not really getting all the nutrition that you need, right? So you're, you know, maybe getting a lot of um, glucose released into the blood, but you're not getting the micronutrients and you know, other things that are important to feel good and be well. And so our body recognizes that. And that's why, you know, we start to be hungry again for something else a little while later. And so I think it's best to try to focus on eating foods that are low in added sugars, low in these simple carbohydrates. I'm not saying don't eat any carbohydrates, but I think that choosing the right carbohydrates is important because it can really help to, you know, make you feel good and also make you feel like you can go longer without needing to eat again. I know a lot of times when people, you know, do diaries of how they eat and write down what they're eating over the course of the day, when they start to make changes in what they eat, they realize that they actually end up eating a lot less or less often at least because they are not feeling like they get hungry every hour or two. Um, so a lot of times it has to do with the types of food you're eating and how long they're going to satiate you as opposed to, you know, eating something that's going to give you this quick release of glucose. Dr. Nicole, let's bring this back to food addiction because that's what your specialty is. So one of our listeners reached out to me and they were really excited you're coming on. They're, uh, I'm not sure if they're still competing or they are competing in bodybuilding, but they really suffer from binge eating. And this woman reached out. She said that she will binge eat and while she's doing it, she knows she shouldn't do it, but she still does it. And then I'm sure you, you know lots of people who suffer from a similar situation. What would be your recommended steps on how to stop this binge eating? Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, and, you know, the, the guilt associated with binging and knowing that you're, you know, doing something that you don't want to be doing is really what makes binge eating such a difficult, difficult disorder to treat and to cope with. Um, I would say that certainly anybody who feels like they're binge eating and they can't stop or, you know, feel that, you know, it's not something that they have volitional control over. It's really important to seek out the help of a, a medical professional so that you can get some advice on, you know, ways in which you can make some changes to cut back on binge eating. Um, it's not always something that people can do on their own. Sometimes you need the help of a nutritionist or a psychologist to intervene, to, you know, help you understand the steps that you can take so that you can get back to eating in a way that you're not going to be, you know, plagued with overeating and guilt, because that's a terrible way to live. And people, you know, don't want to have to go through that. That's not something that, you know, we want people to have to suffer through. Um, and I think a lot of times to the binge eating, it, it has a lot to do with the foods that we're eating. It's often the case that people are binging on these highly processed foods that make us feel good, right? They're going to release dopamine. They're going to release opioids in the brain. And so you get this momentary high where you feel so good because, you know, you get this rush of these neurochemicals being released, sort of like what happens when you do drugs or, you know, have 
you know, um, some sort of pleasurable experience. You get this momentary feeling of a high, but then that is immediately followed by this low where you realize, oh, wow, why did I do that? I didn't want to do that. And you have this guilt that sets in and it really kind of sets people up for this vicious cycle because then, you know, you feel so bad about what you did. And then one of the things you can do to feel better is to binge again or to overeat again. And so that's how people find themselves in this trap. And it can be something that can be difficult to break out of by themselves. When, when people experience stress, I know, is it true that like most people eat under that situation, but I'm the opposite. What's weird with me is if I'm under stress, I don't want to eat. Like I don't have the stomach to eat. And if I eat something and something, I get like bad news or something, I'll like feel sick to my stomach. I'm like, oh my God, you know? But like, what, what's the stats on that with, with stressful situations, um, you know, yeah. um, with, with uh, eating? And then why is, are certain people like me and certain people, I think most people, um, I, if you ask most like overweight people, like obese people, they'll actually like say if they're under a lot of stress, they had a bad day at work, they'll come home and get a big thing of ice cream and, and eat themselves away. Why, why do certain people do that? But certain people like me and probably Trevor too, I, we're both type A personalities. Maybe that's why, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a good question. I think that part of it, you know, most people I think are unlike you and that they, um, use food as a way to cope with the daily stressors of life. And so I think that, you know, for many people, we all have stress throughout the day, right? Every little thing could be stressful. Having, you know, 20 emails to respond to could be a stressor. Having, you know, to remember to pick something up at the grocery store could be a mild stressor. So these are all things that we have to do in life that could be mild stressors. And I think sometimes people um, cope with them with food and they cope with larger stressors too. Like if they're, you know, worried about losing their job or worried about where they're going to get money to pay for Christmas presents, things like that. People often will use food as a way to cope with the stress because it, it can really be an anxiolytic, right? It can, and this has been shown that when you eat sugar, it can, you know, release these chemicals in the brain that makes us feel better. And so, instead of taking anxiolytic medications, many people, you know, use ice cream and bread and soda to make themselves feel better. Um, and I, I think the opposite though happens, like the response that you're talking about with stress, I think when people get hit with big stressors, like the death of a loved one or a severe, you know, trauma, um, that's usually the type of response where you see that people often can't eat or, or feel like sick to their stomach and don't want to eat. Um, so it really depends on, I think, how people evaluate the stressor. But I think the average person out there, you know, for these little daily hassles, stressor type things, people tend to use food as a way to cope. Um, and that, again, like you said, it contributes to overeating and it contributes to passive calorie intake for many people. And for those people who, you know, aren't exercising a lot and just aren't aware of it, it can be a way in which people can add on body weight that they maybe don't want to have on them. Dr. Nicole, similar to that. Why is it that some, someone could have a bar of chocolate in their desk drawer and then maybe a couple of days per week, eat a small square of it, put it back, and then just, you know, have, oh, I had a square, I'm enough. And there's other people, as soon as they've opened that bar of chocolate, they're finishing the whole thing. Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question. I think it has a lot to do with individual differences. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we've become interested in my lab with learning more about is, you know, who is prone to become addicted to food? And we know that there is a genetic link and that there is a genetic propensity for some individuals to just be more likely to develop an addiction to food, just like there's a propensity for some people to become addicted to drugs or alcohol. You know, people who are the children of alcoholics or people who have a history of addiction in their family they are at greater risk for developing an addiction themselves because of their genetic background. That doesn't mean they're going to become an addict or going to have a problem, but it means they're at higher risk. And the studies are suggesting the same can happen with food. And so I think that, you know, that's part of the issue is that just some people are wired to not be able to as easily enact restraint and, you know, say, hey, I'm just going to have one piece of chocolate. Um, for some people, if it's there, it, it, it is something where, you know, they, they can't necessarily put the brakes on and they're not going to be able to say no and just have a little bit of it. For someone who has that addictive personality and suffers from, I can't not eat the whole chocolate bar syndrome, 
is is there lifestyle changes they could make? Is there behavioral changes they can make? Or is that kind of just like their personality? There's not really a way to break it. No, I think that there's certainly things people can do to make lifestyle changes to make living that way easier. Um, so I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Why Diets Fail. And in the book, I talk a lot about, you know, the science behind sugar addiction and food addiction and ways in which people can, you know, change their environment to make it easier to navigate. And so if you have this addiction to food or feel that you have like a difficult time controlling your intake of these sugar-rich foods, there are things that you could do. Um, so one thing that I talk a lot about is really changing the changing your environment. And that, that can be difficult because, you know, our modern food environment in general, we really have no control over, right? I mean, if you go out to, you know, shopping, you're going to walk past convenience stores, you're going to walk past fast food restaurants. There, these are things that are in our life that we can't always avoid. But we can develop coping strategies so that we don't find that we're giving in to these cravings. Um, I talk a lot in the book, too, about cravings, because I think that's something that really makes or breaks people when it comes to giving in and, you know, giving into um, an addictive behavior. We find it's difficult with food because, you know, it's a little easier when you talk about drugs, right? Because everybody knows like, oh, you're not really supposed to crave drugs. If you're craving, you know, marijuana, then that's a sign that maybe you're having a little too much of it or you need to, you know, think about things. But we're supposed to crave food, right? I mean, it's normal to crave food and it's normal to feel like having different types of foods once in a while. So where do you draw the line between, oh, I should give into this craving and I shouldn't give into this craving? And so I think it's important to, you know, talk a lot about that and to understand, you know, ways that we can recognize signals in our body. Um, often cravings come about because we're hungry, right? Or because we're deficient in a certain nutrient and it's our body's way of kind of telling us, hey, you know what, you're craving a hamburger right now because you're low in iron. And so maybe you should go out and seek out some sort of meat source so you can bolster your iron levels. But if you're getting a craving when you walk past the Starbucks because, you know, you just suddenly remembered like how delicious Frappuccinos were, that's a different type of craving, right? So that's more of a hedonic craving or something that has to do with the pleasure associated with the food. So it can be difficult to kind of tease these apart because often we're craving foods that are pleasurable and maybe we also need, um, but sometimes it, it's really just purely a hedonic craving. And so that's why I think it's important to, you know, stay in tuned with why you want to eat the foods and, and what is, you know, causing you to want to eat them and what are the, the reasons behind you suddenly developing a desire to eat a certain food. Do you, do you, Steve, let me throw one more question. Sure, go ahead. Um, building on that, there's been a lot of preliminary research on the gut-brain connection and that possibly people with a poor microbiome might be craving sweeter foods is there have you have you looked at that research at all and maybe like a yeast overgrowth in your stomach would make you crave sugars because that's what yeast um, primarily thrives on is do you, do you have you done any research on that yeah we haven't looked at that particularly in my lab but i have heard and read a lot about it um, just from different conferences and academic things that i've attended the past few years it's become a really interesting area um, certainly this gut brain connection is, is very important. And I think that, you know, the whole microbiome approach is something that's relatively new. And I think that there's, you know, a lot of interesting things going on in that space that could be helpful to understanding, you know, why we crave certain foods and, you know, what are the net effects of eating these certain foods if, you know, our microbiome isn't, you know, set up in the, in the most optimal way. Um, you know, I guess I, I kind of, again, coming back as a neuroscientist, I've been interested in how, you know, what, for years we, we've known that sugar, especially if you eat too much processed, too much sugar or highly processed foods that have a lot of sugars in them, we have this connection in the gut and in the brain as well. So when you eat sugar, you get this release of dopamine in your brain. And dopamine is one of these feel-good neurotransmitters that is associated with pleasure and reward. You get that release of dopamine when you eat the sugar, when it immediately hits your tongue, you get a signal sent up through your brainstem into your reward regions in your brain that says, hey, this tastes good, it releases dopamine. But what's really interesting is you also get a release of dopamine when the sugar hits your gut. So there's receptors in the gut that detect when the sugar has arrived, and that also sends signals up through the vagal nerve 
to our brain that tell you it's pleasurable and reinforcing. And so you almost get this double whammy of pleasure from eating sugar because it releases dopamine as soon as you taste it. And then as you start to digest it in the gut, it also releases sugar. So I, I definitely think that the whole connection between the gut and the brain is important. And I'm excited to learn more about, you know, these new studies that will be coming out as more and more people are studying that aspect of this. What do you have to say for the people out there? And it's probably not very many of the people listening to our podcast, but we have family members that have this attitude. And the attitude is, you know what, we're all going to die of something. So who cares? Why, why waste all this money studying this stuff? Why, why should I worry that I go to the gas station, you know, and get my food from the gas station, eat cake and eat ice cream and eat, eat all the shit. Like, what do you have to say to those people? Because, you know, we all have people like that in our family and, and they give a shit about the way we eat. Yeah. And, and you go to Thanksgiving dinner and they throw a pie in front of you or a cake and you don't eat it. They give you shit for it. Right. What should we tell those people who say, you know what, who cares? Yeah, you know what, my blood glucose is 160. I'm a type two diabetic, but I'm still going to eat this cake because you know what, we we all die of something someday. Yeah, no, I can totally relate to that. I I hear this a fair amount. Um, And I've still struggled to come up with the like best way to articulate how I really feel when people act like that or talk like that. I think that lately what I've been telling people is, yes, we're all going to die of something, but we have control to some extent over when that is. And we also have control over our quality of life. I mean, there's, there's not a lot we can control in this world, but we can control our quality of life. And by eating healthy and by eating and working out and by eating in ways that's going to promote good health, we can feel a thousand times better than we will if we're eating all this processed junk food. And I think people don't always take that seriously because they don't realize how good they can actually feel if they eat healthy and eat a well-balanced diet as opposed to eating, you know, a lot of junk food and processed foods. So, you know, and I talk about this in my book too, because part of the issue for people who, especially who are trying to cut back on sugars is that you get all these people pushing food on you, right? You get these pushers of sugar and, you know, you tell people, oh, I'm trying to eat healthy. I'm not having dessert or, you know, I'm going to have fruit or something like that. And they'll say, oh, come on, you look great. You can, you know, you can eat it. Why are you doing that? And they kind of give you a hard time. And I, you know, I tell people, you don't have to justify your behavior to anybody. I mean, you're in charge of your body. You're in charge of what you eat. And it's, it's not your job to convince other people that you're eating what you want to eat. Um, and so I think it's, you know, often a difficult conversation to have, especially with family members. But I think when you lay it out as a quality of life scenario, not so much about like living and dying, but living the best life you can and feeling good (laughs) while we're here. Um, that seems to resonate with people. We were at the holiday party for Evo last year. And they were giving Trevor shit because Trevor wouldn't eat any cake afterwards. And Trevor pulled his shirt off in front of anybody. It was like, you got these abs? You see these, this eight pack? How do you think, how do you feel about that? And everyone just shut up. Do you think that was smart yeah. for him to do that? Or was that going too far? Well, no, I think it illustrates the point. I mean, and again, you know, I, I really think that it's, people need to mind their own business when it comes to eating to some extent, like, especially when, you know, people are, if people are choosing not, it'd be one thing if Trevor was like, Oh, I'm, I'm not eating anything. <laughs> but if he's, if he wants to pass on the cake, then that's fine. That's his own decision to make. It's not like it's a required food group. You know, cake is not <laughs> as far as I know in the, my plate or anything like that. So, yeah, I think that, you know, sometimes sort of getting the message to people like, hey, mind your own business. I'm, you know, I'm eating healthy and there's reasons behind it. It's it's a good thing to do. But what I tell sort of the average person who's just like, hey, you know, maybe doesn't have an eight pack and it's just like trying to, you know, get themselves back into shape and maybe lose a little bit of weight, you know, that you don't have to justify what you eat or why you're eating to anybody. It's really nobody's business. And, you know, coming up with a few, you know, quips you can make about, you know, Hey, well, I just don't feel like eating it or I already, you know, I'm not hungry right now. That should be enough. You shouldn't have to sit there and, you know, explain yourself away to anybody. 
50% of Americans are at least 30% body fat. That's the statistic that we just saw a month ago. That's pretty shocking that 50% are at least 30%. That's pretty bad. Yeah, well, I mean, 60% of Americans are overweight. I'm not sure how much percent body fat extra they're carrying, but in terms of BMIs, you know, the the numbers are going up. And the numbers are actually greater for children. So the 18 and under crowd, we're seeing that the numbers are going up even higher. So I think that this is an issue we're going to be facing for a very long time, especially since our, you know, smallest people are showing no signs of having a change in the trajectory of, you know, body weight. Um, so I think it is a, it's a huge public health problem and it's not always something that people take very seriously. And I still, to this day, I've been studying this for like 15 years and, you know, to this day, people kind of sometimes, like you said, just don't take it seriously and think, oh, well, you know, I got, I, I went to this restaurant and this is the plate of food they gave me. So they assume that that's the appropriate amount of food that they should eat in a meal or, you know, oh, you know, you go in the grocery store and you, you know, see these different food items and people just assume they're healthy because it says all natural on the label. There's just a lot of misinformation out there. And I think people need a lot of help to really understand, you know, what is in our food environment and ways that they can make better choices about what they eat. Dr. Nicole, I don't have children, but one thing I'm very interested in is how you raise your children. Because I remember growing up, I had the clean plate club. And the rules were, you know, I wasn't allowed to leave the kitchen table until I finished everything on my plate. And, you know, growing up, I had really good parents. I didn't want to bash my parents. And, of course, my plate was full of good, nutritious food. But looking back at that, I could see how that could kind of give me an unhealthy relationship with food because if for whatever reason I wasn't hungry, maybe I was playing with my friend after school and we were at his house and their parents made us snacks, I still had to finish my plate no matter what. What, what do you recommend for your children? Do you maybe say you have to try everything on your plate? Do you have to, if you want dessert, you have to finish your plate? Like what, what are the rules you have in your house? Yeah, good question. So I have two kids. I have a 10 year old and a three year old and they're both girls. And I have been really interested in the past few years. Um, our lab started studying the role of nutrition during pregnancy. And I've written a couple of books in that space. One that's called what to eat when you're pregnant. And the other one that just came out is called what to feed your baby and toddler. And this question is really um, speaks to the, the latest book that just came out because a lot of what the research suggests is that if you want to encourage your child to have a healthy relationship with food, it really starts early on, like those first few months when you first start feeding them. And a lot of parents just, you know, don't, you just have a baby and you give it food, right? You just think, oh, okay. And there's actually a fair amount of research that's gone on to try to understand how you can get babies to develop preferences for vegetables, because that's something that's almost impossible um, to get little kids to like, right? They're really keen on, you know, maybe fruits and, you know, lots of these complex carbs and sweets, obviously, but it's really hard to get kids to eat vegetables. And so exposing them to the foods early on life is really key. And so that's really the, the kind of mindset that I've adopted or my husband and I've adopted with our kids is really encouraging them to just try a variety of different foods. And it's not about you have to clean your plate because I, like, I agree with you, Trevor. I don't think that that's always a good message to send because you want kids to learn to understand their body cues and you don't want to be eating when you're not hungry, but you do want to make sure that you get enough calories and get enough of the nutritious foods that you need that are going to last you for the next couple of hours, especially for, you know, school age kids, right? If they don't, you know, if they leave for school in the morning and they don't get snack or lunch until 11 or 12 o'clock, you need to make sure you had a decent sized breakfast to last you through the, the morning. So we've advocated really just trying different foods and, you know, not bulking at something just because it's, you know, looks weird or it's green or, you know, maybe it's um, not something that you're used to seeing. Um, and I think that that mindset has worked, especially with my older daughter. I feel like now she's a pretty good, uh, she's pretty good at policing her, her diet, meaning that if it's somebody's birthday at school and, you know, she had a cupcake at school because it was Joey's birthday, then, you know, she'll come home and say, oh, yeah, I had a cupcake for Joey's birthday, so I'm not going to have, like, cookies after school. Like, she's aware of the fact that it's okay to have sweets in moderation, but you do have to moderate. You can't just, you know, 
have as much as you want when no one's looking. And I think that's really the message that we want to send to our kids is to teach them to police their own diet so that they can make good choices because they're the ones that are going to have to do it ultimately. So I don't have kids either. Um, at least none that I know of. I had a couple of chicks try to pin their kids on me. Um, but that's a separate podcast. But, um, so what are some ideas for Halloween? Uh, because I gave the kids last Halloween, it was about a month ago. I gave them gruel and my house ended up getting toilet, toilet papered and and egg. So what are some (laughs) options to give the the kids in Halloween? Yeah. It smelled rotten, like for a week at my place. Well, yeah, Halloween, I know that's always like uh, an issue, right? Because I think the issue with Halloween is that kids, kids just want to go around and get something. They don't care that it's candy. I think, you know, kids are exposed to so many sweets and different things throughout the year that it doesn't, it, it's not like it was when we were younger where it was like a special occasion for Halloween to roll around because that's when you would get your candy. I feel like kids get candy all the time now and there's, there just is access to it so much more easily than it used to be. So it's kind of lost its salience. I think that the thing about Halloween is the kids just like getting dressed up and going around and getting something. And so I've, I don't know, like, you know, I've found that kids are just as happy getting like these bracelets or little junky toys or, you know, other stuff than they are with candy. Um, and it, a lot of it, it just, to me, it's a huge waste, right? One of the things that they were doing at my daughter's school was they were letting you donate your candy to the troops, which is wonderful. I think it's always great to give back to the armed forces. I have a family full of military members, but the troops don't want our candy. They have their own issues with obesity and, and people in the military being overweight. That's the last thing I think people in the military want is candy. I think they'd rather have something else. So it ends up just basically being this big waste where I think people get the candy and then they end up throwing it out because they don't want it in their house. They don't want their kids eating it. And so I really, I really wish we could come up with a way as a society to, you know, change it from candy to something else because it's just, to me, it's, it's kind of pointless. Give, give the kids uh, dollar bills. If I was a kid, oh, yeah. I would want a dollar bill than a, a Kit Kat. Exactly, yeah. I, my kids would definitely take money over Kit Kat any day. Well, you're a doctor, though. You could give them $100 bills. No, doctors don't make as much as you think. You'd be surprised. <laughs> my, my dad's a prof. You actually don't make that much in academia. It's a very well-respected job. You have really good benefits and um, retirement plans, but you actually don't make that much in academia. Yeah, academic jobs are, are definitely something that people do because they have a passion for it, not because they uh, are rolling in the dough. <laughs> So Dr. Nicole, one question I have for you is that it's pretty well established that sugar is addictive. You know, eat a lot of sugar, you're going to crave sugar, you're going to become addicted to sugar. Has your lab looked at, is there like a threshold where the addiction happens? Meaning that, let's say I had two teaspoons of sugar per day, that wouldn't be enough for me to start craving sugar? Have you looked at thresholds or anything like that? Uh, great question. We, we did do some research on that, trying to understand if there was this, you know, point at which it's almost like a safe amount, right? Because I think that's the question people have. And it, it's not quite so easy to come up with that number. And I think this kind of goes back to the point I brought up earlier about genetic propensity. And if you think about it with respect to like drugs and alcohol, you know, there's plenty of people out there who can drink alcohol all the time and have a healthy relationship with it, not overdo it, not get in trouble, not do things that they're not supposed to. Um, but then there's other people who, you know, really can't, and it can only have like a few alcoholic beverages and find that they're, you know, on the road to becoming an alcoholic or, you know, abusing alcohol. And so I think that it's similar with sugar that it's, it's really different depending on the individual. And so it's kind of hard to sort of say, Oh, Hey, you know, you can have X number of teaspoons of sugar each day and you'll be sure to not become addicted. Um, I think it really varies depending on people's genetic backgrounds and, you know, their history of sugar use and, and really just sort of what's going on in their life. So although we have tried, like I said, with our studies, um, to try to identify. The one thing we were able to identify is that the binging on sugar does seem to play a role. Um, because when you binge on sugar and by binging, I mean, you consume a large amount of it in a short amount of time. So I kind of look at binging as like eating a Snickers bar, if you will, because there's a ton of sugar in a Snickers bar and you could eat the whole thing in, you know, what, two minutes. That seems to be associated with the addictive like eating. 
Um, whereas if you kind of sprinkle your intake of sugar a little bit here, a little bit there throughout the day, that, that seems to be promoting more of a healthy relationship. And so that's part of the reason why, you know, one of the things people often ask me about is, well, hey, what about fruit? I mean, fruit has sugar in it. Does that mean I shouldn't eat fruit? And my answer is always, well, fruit, yes, it does have sugar in it, but it has it in a proportion that is much less than what you'd see in so many processed foods. And it also has fiber and other nutrients that balance out the effect that the sugar has on our body and our brain. And so, you know, people who, you know, eat snack on fruits throughout the day or other things that do have small amounts of sugar in them, they don't seem to develop a problem with addiction to food. It's people who end up consuming, you know, ice cream cakes, all these things that have lots of amounts of sugar in it um, in this small amount of time that seem to develop these addictive-like behaviors. And so that's why um, a lot of our studies sort of point to reducing intake of the highly processed foods that have lots of added sugars in it, because those seem to be the ones that are the culprits. Dr. Nicole, I have one more question, then I'll let Steve finish up the podcast. When you go to your grocery store now, sugar has 50 different names. You know, you have sugar, you have high fructose corn syrup, you have dehydrated cane juice. You, I mean, I could list off 50 different things. In your research, have you found that some are maybe better than others, some are worse than others, or are they all pretty much equal? Great question. So, yeah, again, this is really something I'd speak about a lot because, you know, it's not just about avoiding sugar, the word sugar. It's a, a reducing our intake of the word sugar. It's about, like, all these other names for sugar. And the average person, when you, like, flip over a package and look at the nutrition facts label, you know, you might not see the word sugar, but you're going to see 50 other things that are actually code for sugar that you might not even be aware of, like the things you just mentioned. And so I think, I don't really think that there's one sugar that's better than the other. I think they're all the same in terms of how they affect our brain. Um, and in terms of, you know, thinking about this from the addiction standpoint, I don't really think that there's a way that you could substitute one sugar for another and that's going to, you know, sort of help you break this cycle of addiction. Our research has shown that it's the sweet taste that releases dopamine and releases opioids in the brain. So it's not so much about the source of the sugar or which sugar it is, but it's about that sweetness. And when we oversweeten our diet, that's when we start to see you know, these effects in terms of behaviors and changes in the brain that can lead to these, you know, addiction-like responses. So like I said earlier, I think the best advice is, you know, just try to reduce the amount of added sugar you're eating. And if you are going to have added sugar in your diet, just, you know, use small amounts of it and just really try to be cognizant of how much of it is already sneaking into your diet to begin with just in many of the foods that we just, you know, eat throughout the day. Can you close up talking about fast food? What are they putting in fast food that make people so addicted? Because if I eat fast food, I throw up. It just the smell makes me sick. But I have a neighbor, like every hour or two, he gets in his car and drives down to a different fast food place and gets gets like a burger or some, you know, fries or uh, some nuggets or something. He's just addicted to it. Like what what is he addicted to? Is it the oil that they're putting in there? What, what is what is his uh, addiction to that? And why do I think it's disgusting and he thinks it's delicious. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is that's, you know, in many of these fast food products that people find to be so appealing. I think, first of all, one thing that, you know, many people are are keen on is the the sodas. And so, as you know, when you go to a fast food restaurant, they try to get you with, like, the meal package, right? Because that's cheaper in some sense. And so the size of the soda that you're given is is enormous, um, and so, you know, that's part of it. And that's certainly where I think the sugar component comes in. But I also think that, um, you know, for many people, it's really just a habit that develops. And, you know, when you eat these types of foods, it's it's very much like we were talking about earlier, how it, it releases these neurochemicals in the brain that make us feel good. And it's this sort of momentary high. And then it's usually followed by a feeling of, oh boy, I shouldn't have ate that. That was not a good idea. But, you know a way to make yourself feel better is to do it again. And so that's why people develop this sort of, you know, cyclic behavior where they, you know, eat those types of foods, feel good for a few minutes, and then they feel bad after. And then to make themselves feel better, they go and eat them again. 
Um, I, I think it's, th- we could do a whole podcast just talking about, you know, the psychology of fast food, because it's not just about what's in the food. If you notice a lot of the famous fast food restaurants, they haven't changed their logo in 50 or 60 years. And there's a reason behind that because those arches or, you know, the emblems that we see, it basically is a primer in our brain to then want to eat those foods. And so there's a lot of psychology associated with eating of these foods and the habits associated with eating of these foods that is really the driver behind it. Not so much the ingredients in the food, because, you know, like you said, it's actually pretty disgusting when you think about it and and taste it yourself. But um, a lot of it has to do with this sort of um, psychology of eating and habit formation that happens for many people. Yeah, I think I, when I used to, when, I just want to say this, when I used to eat it back in my early 20s, <clears throat> I don't, when I was in like college and after college, it was more of a convenience thing, but I also found the food disgusting even back then, but I'd still go back because it was so cheap and so easy to get. I didn't have time between, I was going to college classes, I had like five minutes to eat, and they only had fast food places in, at my college cafeteria, so I'd have to eat that crap at a convenience, so I wonder if people just like, if that has to do with it too but you like you said it's the marketing because they throw so many billions of marketing to tell you to eat their food so you think hey it's okay to eat their food maybe that's what you know well, well one thing they really get is they get you when you're young because i remember i played rec sports all throughout junior high and high school and gatorade would donate water bottles and water coolers right and i'm sure the coach is thinking like oh free water bottles free water coolers awesome but then you see that. And I remember being a kid, you know, and, and just in elementary school, I would do these runs and then Ronald McDonald would be there handing out your prizes. And then um, McDonald's would donate whatever, you know, fruit juice or whatever, but it all be in a McDonald's cup. So then as a kid, you're like, hey, I ran this race. I got to see Ronald McDonald. I got to have some juice boxes after. Then you associate happiness with McDonald's. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's, it's true that that happens to this day. And I think, you know, it even happens um, for adults. I mean, a lot of, you know, these sort of healthy events are often sponsored by unhealthy products, right? Um, and, and things that we even do as adults, I, I find that I'm seeing a lot of, you know, food industry influence on, you know, behaviors and you know part of it is like where the food industry is trying to maybe you know say oh hey we we care about your health we want people to be healthy too but again it becomes a marketing scam right they're just getting their name out there and getting you know more advertising for themselves so it's complicated and i i think that there's many layers to it and and i i think it's difficult for people to kind of get through life with all these different things going on especially when it comes to trying to eat healthy Dr. Nicole, where can our listeners find out more about you and where can they purchase your books? Yeah, so on my website, uh, com, there's links to all my books. Um, my books have all been published by Penguin Random House, so also I'm on their Speakers Bureau, so you can take a look at their website, which is linked on my website. Um, and we also have information about all the you know stories about our research, upcoming events, um, you know, different things that are related to research on food addiction and sugar. So definitely check it out. Awesome. For our listeners, if you're not sure how to spell Nicole Lavina, I'll have her website in the show notes. So you guys can just check that out. For your host, Trevor Gritson, and for my co-host, Steve Smee, and for our special guest, Dr. Nicole Lavina, this has been another episode of Evolutionary Radio. Live your life, look good doing it. Thanks for listening. Thank you.